You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. You want to come see us talk live on the Getting to Yes And podcast? Well, I'm going to be talking to Keegan-Michael Key, Second City alum, and L. Key about their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy, A Journey Through the Art and Craft of Humor, on October 5th at 7 p.m., the Francis Parker School. This is part of the Chicago Humanities Festival. If you want to get tickets, go to chicagohumanities.org. My guests today on the podcast are Francis Fry and Ann Morris. Francis uh, is a returning guest. She's a professor at Harvard Business School. She served as Uber's first senior vice president of leadership and strategy to help the company navigate its very public crisis in leadership and culture. She regularly works with companies embarking on large-scale change and organizational transformation, including embracing inclusion and diversity as a lever for improved performance. And Morris is a leadership coach and the executive founder of the Leadership Consortium, a first-of-its-kind leadership accelerator that works to help more and varied leaders thrive. Her collaborators have ranged from early-stage tech founders to Fortune 500 executives to public sector leaders building national competitiveness. Uh, she spent the last 20 years building and leading mission-driven enterprises serving most recently as CEO and founder of GenePeaks, which addressed the urgent need for better personal health information. And they have a new book. It's called Move Fast and Fix Things, The Trusted Leader's Guide to Solving Hard Problems. Love talking to them. Enjoy the pod. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by Francis Fry and Ann Morris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. We're thrilled to be here. So in the preface for your new book, you write, quote, a cornerstone of our work is that leadership is the practice of imperfect humans leading imperfect humans, end quote. And I think this is actually a really important presupposition with regard to leadership and business that many leaders likely believe, but don't use that particular insight to inform their actions as a leader. So, Anne, does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Yes, we have found it to be a very liberating phrase in mm-hmm. the work that we do. In part, I think, because a lot of people, and Francis and I have been, well, Francis, I will only speak for me in this delightful <laughs> conversation, but fall into this idea uh, that there is some kind of perfection, end of the rainbow, end state for leadership. And because there is none, uh, I'm right. here to just break the the fantasy, break someone's heart out there. Um, we end up performing leadership 
instead of actually leading. And this phrase, it's it's fast, but it's a quick release from that kind of performative leadership, which is based on the fantasy that there is some kind of perfection when there's not. I, I would also add, Kelly, that, you know, the burden of perfectionism, I'm not sure that it it uh, hits all people uh, equally. I know I've been liberated from it my whole life and it feels like it's been a competitive advantage. Yeah. Um, but some, there's a bunch of people, though, that suffer from the burden of perfectionism for themselves. And then for others, like in their judgment of others. And so Anne's word is perfect there. The liberation and the optimization that can come on top of that liberation, it's like what a low ceiling perfectionism gives to everyone. And when you you just get to take the roof off um, on it. So it's really uh, that you drew your attention to it. It's exactly, I think, a, a beautiful point in the beginning of the book. Well, yeah. thinking- Go ahead. Go ahead, Kelly. Go ahead. I was thinking about this in the context of, so I was a very young leader at Second City. I became the boss here when I was 26 and I was not like qualified. Uh, and my now wife, Anne, uh, who was my then friend, Anne, I asked her for one piece of advice. And the advice she gave me was, you're going to be wrong a lot. Just make sure you say you're sorry. Mm. And and that to me is sort of core here. But what, what I'll say about that is I did follow that, but I don't know that I believed it. Until I was older and sort of, you know, kept coming across the evidence and the literature, and then that matched up with the experiences. And so this idea, whether it's the irrationality of human beings, the infallibility, you know, that we're all fallible creatures, that sort of thing, it it is quite liberating. But there is so much stacked against us in terms of the stories we're told, the movies, the TV, the books, uh, and, and our own I imagine all of our own experiences from the jobs we take that we took from whether you're like, I was a you know bagger at a grocery store and I was already being exposed to sort of not great leadership behavior. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the stories we're told and it's also the stories we tell and we decide to believe that I think get in the way of getting this right. So this, this story that I'm supposed to be really good at this you know, at age 26 mm-hmm. or or 45 or wherever your starting point is, can get in the way of getting really curious about where what you're doing is working and not working. And that that curiosity piece is really is really central to the work we do. The sentence that follows the one that you quoted was about this being the jumping off point for imperfect organizations. Yeah. And that's really what we're interested in. We're interested in 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 the outcome of the hard truth that we are all flawed and those imperfections are reflected then in the organizations that we build. And when you start there, when that's not your dirty little secret that you're dragging into the office, when that's the starting point and it happens to be a universal starting point, then you're free to go figure it out. You know, Mm -hmm. what's working, what's not working? How do we run an experiment to get to a better place together? And how do I bring other people along? Because we sometimes get pulled into this idea that it is our, our secret that we're not getting everything right. It's so nice. The the slope of improvement, if you start with we're imperfect, is so much steeper than the slope of improvement if you assume perfection. (laughs) Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. I'm curious about, so the the way the book is organized is uh, by days of the week. So so this is a Monday through Friday book. Weekends we take off uh, (laughs) and we'll get to that. But um, 
I am curious uh, why you made that choice. I mean, and, and on the one hand, if we're talking about moving quickly, using but 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 not like everything's going to happen right today. It does insist that, like, well, if you look at it in a week, you're giving yourself a sort of a mental model. Well, I'm curious, France, I'll start with you on this. What, what, what were you guys thinking when, when you came up with that idea? The, the observation was that people um, permit or um, allocate way too much time for change. So, ah. um, and when we look at how much is uptime versus downtime. So like, let's say somebody allocated themselves a year to do something. And then we look backwards at that year. Oh my gosh, the times that they were actually doing the thing, <laughs> if you compressed that super small percentage and the mm-hmm. time they weren't doing it in that year, a lot. And so then we were like, well, does it matter? Like, does it matter that I go on, off, on, off, on, off all year? And it does. That because what the organization will be receiving from you are mixed messages. So much better to wait until you're ready to do it and then do it. And don't do it in the mornings and then that don't do it every other week. Do it. And then it turns out that the doing it is much closer to a week than any other unit of analysis. When we started writing the book, we even broke it down to hours. Like, here's what you'll do from 9 to 10 and 10 to 11. That was too much. But mm-hmm. we even went to that granular place. Well, and, and that is, to my mind, uh, making it a practice. You know, and this is this is what we talk about with, with improvisation is you're, you're not just suddenly going to be good at this, like like anything. And it's always going to be in flux. Uh, and a lot, and it, it's not going to be so daunting if you just recognize that that is a that is a practice that you have as a human walking through this world. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and we love to say, you know, you do the week, take the weekend, and start all over again oh, yeah. is really the practice. Yeah. I mean, we. I mean, we we quote this in the book and all the time, but no one has ever said to us, you know, I wish I had taken longer and done less. No one ever. So if if that's the jumping off point, then well, what what does it look like to actually move fast? And that's the challenge we gave ourselves for this book. How do you move fast and not break things? Because the prevailing ethos in our world is that it's inevitable. And that assumption wasn't lining up at all with our experience. Mm-hmm. So we really gave ourselves a challenge of like turning this into a playbook and as we had fun with it and fun with the idea, well, how much time do you need and how much time do you think you need? And how do we close that gap? This this weak form came into view for us. And then it's also fun and it's memorable. Uh, and we are being both playful and deadly serious about how much you can actually accomplish in a week. It's astonishing how much can get, get be, be accomplished in a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's start. Let's start with Monday. Um, so you were in the book. Monday. Quote. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> yeah, right. It's Monday. Is uh, it Monday yet? Uh, and it happens to be uh, actually Monday that we're taping. So you say in the book, quote, Monday's ambition is to find the problem, a gritty little word, word we often dilute and defang in the American workplace, replacing it with more palatable substitutes like issue or opportunity, end quote. And this reminded me of that idea um, of Danny Kahneman sees the world as a problem, and that and that is his particular kind of superpower. So I think that's that you're trying to do a reframe of, of, of problem here, right? 
Yeah. And that problem, problem is such an honest statement. And, you know, when I don't know who converted problems to opportunities, Mm-hmm. But it really, I think the defanging is right. Like we were almost afraid to confront that we had a problem. So we're going to, you know, we're going to call it something softer. Yeah. And I just don't think it's necessary. Like if it's necessary if you don't know how to save, solve problems and if you're afraid of problems. But if you know how to, it'd be like if I see a pothole, I'm going to call it something else. Well, I would only do that if I don't know how to, you know, fill and smooth over potholes, but I do. So, so let's not do it. So I think that's really where it came from is that we somehow got afraid of problems as opposed to problems are fixable. Like really, really hard problems are fixable if we just bring our can do spirit to it. And, and I I imagine you had to start with Monday because if you're not, ready to admit that there's problems the rest of the week kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, for sure. It's the starting point is getting curious and being honest about the fact that some things are not working. <laughs> you know, There's potential here. We're not meeting. And to us, it's a, it's just a much more honest word than some of these synonyms that, ha- and some of the corporate speak that has become part of the lexicon that actually gets in the way of progress the, the reality is, is that y- you and your people are experiencing the world in terms of problems, in terms of things that need to be fixed. And when we, when we use the honest language around that, I think we can meet people and organizations where they are. And that's what we are trying to do. Because, for example, we want fewer problems. Do we really want fewer opportunities? Like they don't work as substitutes. <laughs> mm, that's interesting. You know, we talk in our work about replacing blame with curiosity. Uh, as a way to enter in this space. And it's in, in th- this chapter, it's all about curiosity being that yeah. thing, of like maybe the number one tool you have when you're going in to solve these problems, right? Yeah. And that you want to, the other part of here is that the presenting problem is only occasionally the actual problem. So I was just earlier today talking with a group that was, and we were talking about speed and they were like, oh no, we went so fast. We have to slow down. Like the speed was a problem. And I was like, okay. And how did you know that speed was the problem? Well, because we aren't coordinated well with one another. So when we go fast, that accelerates it. I was like, so you have a coordination problem. You don't have a speed problem. You have a coordination problem. Let's, mm-hmm. let's identify that. And then let's fix that. And then your speed is no longer the problem. So I think the, it's the find the real problem, right? is the is the monday so that we can get down to what's what's the culprit that's actually it makes me you know one of those exercises that we we i'm sure you've seen us do this before because it's it's almost always at the beginning of one of our workshops we do a red ball exercise where it's a fictional ball that that people are passing around then we add another ball of another color and basically sort of teaching people there are real this is complex but there are real things you can do to handle the complexity it's not beyond you right. um, and that's such an important sort of instrumental first step for for you to then work as a group to solve the problem yeah we find that there's a lot of power in the world it, yeah. we find that there's a lot of power in the word because it implies that there's a solution yeah i like in this chapter you talk about uh you ask the question has someone built a house of no so I imagine you've met the, those kinds of architects. Uh, in every organization we've ever been a part of and ever worked with. <laughs> there's a lot of no. And look, no, no can be a great thing. 
good people, good people who their role is the protectors of the institution. It's not their fault. They get invited to meetings they shouldn't be invited to. Yeah. And it's a place where that's a place where we find curiosity can be really powerful of, of, okay, so can we infiltrate the house of no and understand really what the motivation is behind the no, because I'm, and I'm wired to get really frustrated by that and want to tunnel around it, but have had some of the most powerful conversations I've had in my career is, is being really direct and getting curious and trying to show up in that conversation without judgment. What is this stakeholder trying to preserve? And what is he or she afraid of in this change journey? I'm going to use the word journey unironically multiple times in this conversation, Kelly. I love it. What, yeah. So, so, but what, what really, what's the fear? And can I, can mm-hmm. I lean into that and understand it? And then can we resolve the fear rather than just shutting down progress in the name of this boogeyman that we, we don't even know who's also in the room? Right. Well, so... And you need to do that on Monday because then Tuesday you, you tackle a very small thing, uh, which is called trust. Um, and I, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not small at all. Uh, Francis, I actually want you to talk to start us on this about this exercise that you do in your class around the electric maze. Cause I think that's a very good illustration of, of how maybe you get at this. Yeah. And so the electric maze is this wonderful exercise and Amy Edmondson introduced me to it. Um, where we lay out a carpet that has, you know, I don't know, maybe eight by 15 squares on it. Um, And each square is like one foot by one foot. So you can step on the squares. A square either beeps or doesn't beep when you step on it. So it's got invisible differentiation, but otherwise they look identical to each other. And what we just task students with is you have to find the non-beeping path, consecutive path through the maze. And then we put some constraints on for pedagogical reasons that if only one person can be on the maze at a time. Mm-hmm. And if you find a beep and the beep tells you it's wrong, you have to get off, go to the end of the line and the next person goes on. And what we will see is when a person is on the maze, other people are like super animated about where they should go next. Nobody knows where they should go next. So everybody, everybody is super animated about where they should go next and very opinionated where Mm -hmm. it is not knowable. Uh, but And so what happens is the participants essentially end up freezing. It's like they're playing freeze tag. They're frozen and they're like, should I be this one, this one, and this one? And so they're waiting for what feels like an eternity and no new information can be learned during that wait. So what you should be doing is like earnestly seeking new beeps. So just Mm -hmm. experiment, find new beeps. And when there is the only sadness that should happen is if it's an old beep. Well, you should, so the room, very opinionated, forces people to slow down when they're going for new beeps. And when they hit a new beep, everyone like turns their back. We take pictures of it when the animated, the video of people turning their back and like shaming the person on the maze for finding a new beep, which was not knowable and is indeed progress. So this we find to be like, our goal is to find new beeps. Like that is a very valiant uh thing to do. And that you finding new if you worried about failures old beeps are the ones that you want to figure out how to have That's good right. processes in place it's such an improv thing make mistakes work for you this is like and and there it like the 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 not laugh is terrific because you know not to do that thing again yes i love that <laughs> phrase make mistakes work for you mm-hmm. yeah it's such an improv thing uh and but it's 
It's so counterintuitive, Kelly, which is why we also talk about nerd wallets fail wall Mm -hmm. in the book in that we really have to overcome our human wiring and the socialization that leads us to the assumption my job is to avoid mistakes at all cost. This is why it's such a powerful metaphor for leadership. No, the only way you're getting through that maze is if you and your people are making mistakes, but very deliberately learning from those mistakes. That's the fastest path through. But we really do have to overcome our instincts to get there. So I, um, uh, I was reading the book and I came across this next section. And, so and nice to hear someone say that. I know it's so exciting. We're still at the point in this whole process it where it's really us. exciting for us to hear someone even say exactly that. read the book. Yeah. Uh, well, you'll, you enjoy this part. So, um, so I came across this little section and I'm like, Oh no, this is, this is good stuff. And so I started sending it to people and, and you titled the, the first sentence here is, uh, quote, while the context of every firm is novel, its problems tend to be more commonplace, end quote. I want to read out this list. Um, and I'm going to read out this list because when I sent it uh, to my friend Jen, who's across the hall, she says, well, I feel seen and attacked. Um, because <laughs> <laughs> this is, well, I, okay, let me read it. Um, so here, here's the list that is, is the problems that tend to be more commonplace. Aversion to making choices. Reliance on heroic employees, shiny object syndrome, disengaged middle management, casual relationships with other people's time. I'm going to say that one again. A casual relationship with other people's time, comfort with collateral damage, high incidence of the Sunday scaries, also a good one, people pleasing in the boardroom, tolerance for misalignment, and delusions of meritocracy. I mean, that's that's mean. <laughs> So uh, the people that are hearing this can't see, but Anne is doing a victory lap in. So Anne is the top 10 list, um, just genius. Yeah. Those, uh, I wake up in the morning after she does and there'll be a new top 10 list. And I have the same reaction that you do, Kelly, when I read. You feel seen and attacked. (laughs) (laughs) So Anne, like, I mean, that, it's, uh, okay, yeah. what's saving right. us Listen, from not being so depressed? The, yeah. I'm sorry, say it again? What's saving us from being completely depressed after reading that list? Oh, Monday through Friday, Kelly. Like this okay. is the whole, the, you know, we got we to gotta create a little tension yeah. and just acknowledge the, the, the problem here. And then here's in, in five days of effort and the, the, the thing that we, <laughs> our publisher pushes us on, but we clarify every time. We are deadly serious about the amount of time, the amount of progress you can make in a week. Yeah. Our publisher will say like, oh, can you soften it a little bit? Can you just. No. No. And of course, we're going to give you more than a week uh, if you need it. But we really want you to take us quite literally in the beginning, just for the muscle memory of how how much further down the path you can be when you spend a dedicated eight hours on Monday's activities, a dedicated eight act- hours on Tuesday's activities. It actually is quite a substantial amount of time. And it, you will be shocked by how far you can get. I think your use of humor in the book is crucial because this is real serious, tough stuff. Um, is it Suzuki who said... Um, uh, these these things are are too serious not to joke about them, you know this 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 idea of you know yeah. that's a tough list. 
and 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 my the fact that my friend Jen responded with that with a joke, which is perfect because yeah, but that also you gotta knock you gotta knock that that off. Oh oh, and in this section, this is what I want to ask you about, Francis, which is uh, why was Apple not happy with your slides? <laughs> yeah, can, Kelly, can I just respond to what Please. you said about humor? Go because ahead. we 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 use it all the time in our work, partly because we can't stop ourselves because it's just currency that I think we both use to go through the world in different sure. ways. But also because it, we really need to invite the whole person mm-hmm. into this process. And the fastest path to authenticity in our experience is to laugh with other human beings. Sure. It is, it is the emotion you really can't fake as people have observed. And it really, that really resonates with our experience. So the, the book is littered with moments where we just made ourselves laugh in the process of writing, where we tried to make each other laugh in the process of writing the book, but there really is a pedagogical value to it because if we can connect to that part of you and invite you into this conversation with us, then we're far more likely to get somewhere together. We're also yeah. of the Julia Louis-Dreyfus school of thought, which is everything, every single thing can be made better by laughter. Yeah. Shortest distance between two people is a laugh. That's and it's absurd. I mean, life is absurd. And this, this part of life is absurd where we create these ridiculous organizations and then we're stuck with them and we got to figure out how to make them better. And that's often a hilarious pursuit because all of our humanity gets exposed along the way. That's right. All right. So why, why did Apple have a problem with your slides? <laughs> a hilarious moment. <laughs> well, in, in their defense, I think a lot of people would have a problem with my <laughs> a slides. Lot of people have their slides. <laughs> in their defense, the slides remain ridiculous. Okay. Fair, fair. They're, they're not, um, you know, I would have people who would come into my classroom after I would teach and they mm-hmm. would say, I guess you could call those boards. <laughs> I, the the presentation part is um, has not been the part where I focused on. And so uh, they would be look look like they were made by children. OK, as I think and they this was the thing that they take aesthetic and I'm a devoted Apple uh, sure. consumer. They take the aesthetic very seriously. Um, but but on the serious side, they really did make you think, oh, you guys only have people like you talk to you. Ah, this is going to be so good. And then it turned out to be a beautiful, uh, mm-hmm. beautiful uh, conversation. Yeah, but you still didn't change the slides. So, oh, okay. so Francis, yeah, what's the story? We, you uh, you sent the slides over and what did they say? Oh, they said you uh, you can't use these slides when you in your talk Apple. in my talk. I can't use these slides. And I said, oh, awesome. Don't touch them. And you've now given me the beginning frame of my conversation. So and did you not use the slides and just talk? Of course I used the slides. You used the slides? Of course I used them. And I'm See, not... <laughs> of course. So when I, I, don't even, I, don't, I don't even I, understand the question, Kelly. I don't even understand don't, the question. I get it. I get it. I don't... When I go speak, I don't use slides. Period. And people yeah. always get confused to me. They're, it's like, what, what are you going to have up there? I go, I'm going to have me, the reason you brought me, talk to you. And, and I'm like, I can give you some evidence that I know around the power of the human voice about the fact that that, that it's going to be multitasking and the, you know the, that sort of thing. And it's not to say I haven't. I've I've used them in other kinds of presentations that work you know uh, uh, well. But it is funny how for certain kinds it, they hold on. 
they hold on to the PowerPoint uh, in a way that actors will hold on to things. I, I remember McNapier, who's a director here, once telling me that he meets with the cast before they start rehearsing a new show, and they're all writers and, and performers here. And often, very often, he'll have a female performer who says, I really want to play the cello in the show. Like, I play the cello, I want to show that. I think he's like, absolutely, 100% you're going to play the cello in the show, with no intention for them to ever play the cello in the show. <laughs> and what they're really doing is holding on to something that they have a skill at, yeah. thinking that as they as they enter into the unknown, at least they have that thing. And he's like, I'm happy for you to have the illusion that that's going to help you. It's not going to matter in the long run. Well, I would say I'm a I'm on your side of the fence. I'm a slide light person. There are some things where I still need slides and those look like children made them okay. <laughs> and they could even be useful to a company with the design, one of the best design ethics in the world ethos, I guess, uh, yeah. in the world of uh, of Apple. But that was a wonderful moment. It was a wonderful pedagogical moment. I love it. All right. Wednesday. Wednesday is about making new friends. Oh, it is. And, and Wednesday is, it's really, um, so you came up with your idea, you've solved for trust at the center of it, and now you're going towards the solution. Mm -hmm. And my goodness, your solution will be infinitely better if you can expand the inputs that you get. So we want to really, we want to make new friends. We want to make novel friends. I don't want to make another friend that's just like me. I want to make different friends than me. I keep wanting, I want to add glorious different perspectives and experiences to the table. And that gives us a much better chance of coming up with a great solution. So if you only have a few people, you're going to have a limited solution. But if you have a breadth of pick your favorite breadth, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you're, oh my gosh, the upper envelope of what you can come up, up with it just goes up and up and up in a nonlinear way. So make very new friends. <laughs> and I was thinking about this, that when you think about groups of people, so, so when you talk about improvisation, we talk about groups of people making something out of nothing. That is also what you're talking about. And that's what we talk about in business and, and almost all the, all these different endeavors. Right. You're not going to, if you go to an orchestra and it's all violin players, I think it's going to, not just be boring, but you're not going to be able to create the kind of music you want. If you go to a soccer game or a basketball game or a baseball, it's like there's, you need all these different skills and all these different things to make things work. And I'm just so curious why the business world still seems to need convincing that. Oh, because we really like people who are really like us, Kelly. Yeah. We really do. And it's, and that's at an instinctual and cellular level. So unless we interrupt that with the learned behavior of seeking difference, oh my goodness, we really like people who are really like us. I don't, and I don't condemn anyone. It 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 appears to me to be human nature for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also think we're midway through the story, and midway through this story of diversity inclusion. The news is not great. It doesn't feel great. We haven't yet seen the beautiful return that it's that's really at the end of the inclusion rainbow. And there's very good science around what that is, which we get into in the book. This idea of of you know common information effect. Mm-hmm. And if we just bring in difference and we don't account for it, 
we're actually going to be less effective than these teams that are more similar to each other. And so really, as Francis said, it, it is about intentionally creating an environment where you're not just bringing in diversity, but you ha- you are learning how to invite that diversity to contribute their unique information and insight and capability and talents to the shared mission. And I think what we're seeing, I mean, this is a, a almost absurd time uh, also in the American conversation right. about diversity and inclusion. Right. But when you really get into organizations that are getting it right... It's incredibly exciting what how those organizations are outperforming people who aren't there yet. And what we are uh, on the on the sidelines cheering for is that there are some organizations that are on the way and that they're in the inevitable frustration and discomfort of getting the diversity and difference right, but they haven't really tapped into the full power of that diversity. And and a lot of the work we do is is cheering people on and helping them very tactically keep going down the path. And when we when we wrote about Wednesday, we we really had those organizations in mind. We do make the case for the payoff of inclusion at the beginning, but it's really inviting people who are on the path to keep going. And here's what it looks like, and here's what's at the end of the rainbow when you get it right. Yeah, and it's not easy. I mean, that's another thing. No, it's hard work to learn. And I think, Kelly, the reason it's not easy, if I was going to substitute a word for easy, it's not instinctual. Mm. It is a learned behavior. But as soon as you realize that, I mean, learning can be easy if you realize you have to learn it. So it's, it's what I'd say is it's not instinctual. And when you realize it's a learned behavior, you can learn it like we learn how to do everything. We just have to include this in one of the things we learn how to do because it's also, once you put on the glasses for it, it's so clear. It's mm-hmm. so, I mean, oh my goodness, there's not like, oh, I, I'm going to interpret it this way, but you might interpret it that way. Oh no, there's not two ways to interpret it. It's it's so, the evidence just piles up and piles up and piles up. I love Dolly Chug's uh, approach to this. We were talking about Apple and she talks about, you know, wouldn't it be great if our approach to DEI were like, we're updating the software on our iPhone. I we think- get it. Yeah. And she's totally right because they're, because if we, so many of us leave our instincts at play and our instincts came with, you know, who we grew up with, like what our life's experience is. So our instincts aren't our fault, Mm -hmm. but um, limiting ourselves to our instincts, that is our fault. Uh, Thursday, uh, which is about telling a good story. I had a playwriting teacher uh, once. I will never forget this advice she gave to me. She says, if you can't tell me your play in a sentence, you don't have a play. And I think that very much uh, coincides with your idea of understanding deeply to describe simply. Yeah. And it's this is the one where we, uh, so many of us, when we when we finally understand something deeply, we don't do the extra work to describe it simply. We describe it in all of its glorious complexity. Yeah. And without realizing that that narrows the people that we can talk to and influence to a tiny sliver of the world. And so if we, once you understand something deeply, you're halfway there. And then we have to spend the other half of the time um, describing it simply. In fact, the kindest thing that someone can say is, well, that seems obvious. Ah, that mm. was successful. Great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we love the example of of John Legere and T-Mobile 
who really told the story of that company's turnaround in one word that he essentially made up, which was uncarrier. And -hmm. it's so powerful because at the time, everyone hated their cell phone company for very good reasons because the contracts were terrible and the service was terrible and you were locked in for generations and your firstborn child had to be put up for collateral. Mm -hmm. And then he came in and he said, we're going to build something different. And he activated not just the organization around this idea that we're going to be the uncarrier, but also consumers. And he told that story really powerfully. So I love your one sentence challenge. And we th- there's precedent for getting it down to a single word. Yeah. Uh, another thing that was sort of interesting, y- you talk about this idea of uh, Cantor's law, which posits that everything looks like a failure in the middle. There is a rule in improvisation that you need to start in the middle. So, oh, the, idea more. Is, so the idea is rather than um, start with a bunch of exposition, introducing yourself, get by that. No one's interested in that. Get right to, you know, the the action of where you are, everything else will follow from there. So it's it's like we spend so much time, if you spend a lot of that time digging a hole or searching for something, it's like, nope, mm. get into it. And what you'll notice with really brilliant improvisers is, is they come in with these sort of aud- audacious ideas just right off the bat to see where it goes from there. Uh, yeah, that's all, that, that's really powerful. You know, yeah. and, and we call it Cantor's Law for, um, it's Rosabeth Moss Cantor, so person, mm-hmm. Uh, is Cantor's law. And I think if anyone was privileged enough to follow Rosabeth around for a day, you'd have the 10 commandments. You'd go from laws to command. Like you would learn (laughs) so much in just one day uh, Mm -hmm. with Rosabeth. Love it. All right. So Friday um, is go as fast as you can. And you say, quote, there is such a thing as being too late. Talk to me about the speed and why that's I mean, you talked about it at the beginning as, as being important, but you made it Friday. And is that because ultimately we take our foot off the gas? Well, Friday's the payoff. Yeah. You know, you've you've worked hard all all of this entire week, and then you've earned the right to move fast because you're far less likely to break things. So some organizations comes from a good place, but with a sense of urgency, jump to Friday. And that's where this idea of move fast and break things was born, because what our work has convinced us and we believe has shown persuasively is that, yes, speed is essential to change leadership. Um, But it in order to do it well, you really need to build it on top of a foundation of trust. So Monday through Thursday, you are laying that foundation. Now, when you get to Friday, you can sprint and there's. You know, we, we spend a lot of time, we talk about the tactics, we talk about the strategy, we talk about removing roadblocks, and you get to do all of that, but you really have to get through steps one through four for all of that stuff to work in a sustainable way. Hmm. I, it, it's, I reflecting, when we create shows at Second City, we, it's normally about a 10-week process. So the, the new cast gets together with the director, and then that first three weeks, four weeks is completely yes and. It is all about we're going to try every idea, no matter what. It doesn't matter how stupid, how crazy, how what, we're going to try it. And then it becomes, and we're doing this, of course, in front of an audience. So it, iterating, 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 hearing what the response is in real time. And then we're using that, that latter part to condense, condense, condense. And then the last two weeks is all about sort of ruthless editing and sharpening and honing and, you know, everything on stage. And it feels to me a little bit like 
what you're talking about here is that you, you know, t- 10 weeks can seem like a lot of time. It can seem like no time, but it's the time that we, we have and we all know right. it. So we, that is there. And then there is this progression that you have to admit because you can't do the thing in week nine and week 10 that you do in week one, it will throw everything off. So I think there's also, as I'm thinking about this now in your book, it's very much of like, these are, and the steps will intertwine, right? At at different times, but overall, no, there's an arc. Yeah. You know, what you just described, if I was going to give it a corporate parallel, it's how meetings are run. So Uh a ineffective meeting is one where you call on the first person, you call on the second person, you call on the third person. And if they repeat each other or say things similar to each other, or they say things different, it's, you just, you hear everyone's voice. That's a very ineffective meeting. Even though it sounds nice, it's terrible. Uh Instead, what you want to do is hear all of the ideas. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. So a meeting when the first person speaks and then the facilitator says, who can articulate an alternate point of view? That's right. And then who can articulate? And so what you said, which is so crucial, is you're you're going through all of the ideas. You're not getting everyone's idea. You're going through all of them because a lot of people have similar ideas. And, That's right. And meetings. Oh, my gosh. If we could just edit the meetings and take out all of the duplication, the 60-hour meeting would probably take 20 minutes. Yeah, it's the start in the middle. It's, again, get get me to this. Get, yeah, and, right. and as we know, the research, too, is that you, I think Bob Sutton was saying this to me, that something like a couple thousand ideas for, for the one that might work, again, seems daunting. It isn't if you actually recorded what you're – because what, what are we making? How many decisions are we making in a day? Right. Yeah. So many. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a, an orientation. And then, of course, because that's hard work. It's cognitively difficult. We need the weekend to chill. <laughs> yes, you got to take the weekend off. Well, it's interesting. We wrote Friday knowing that some people would skip ahead. Yeah. And we were hoping that by the end of Friday, we would win them over enough to go back, they to, would, help they'd go to, back to Monday and see if we had anything else useful to say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it, I mean, it's, there's, there's no question that it, it's a non-negotiable and I, I, we weren't the ones who said there is such a thing as being too late. It was it was Dr. King who said that. Yeah. And it was that it is we get really serious about this question of speed because the clock is ticking. It's ticking on our lives. It's ticking on our planet. It's ticking on our organizations. And when we take our time and don't deal with the biggest questions with a sense of urgency, there is a very real price for that choice. You know, I would add to that or add some poignancy to that. Like, let's say one of your problems is that certain groups in your organization aren't given access to thriving the way others are. Yeah. If you take too long, it's at the human cost of those individuals. Mm -hmm. And so we are deadly serious about the need to go fast, but not without Monday to Thursday or else you will fulfill Mark Zuckerberg's promise of moving fast and breaking things. Yeah. 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 All right. We always end the podcast uh, for our first time guests and, and you're one uh, asking for a yes. And a story. Do you have one for us? Yes, Kelly, I'll give you, t- I'll give you two. I'll give Please. you a, a professional and a personal. So 
a recent yes and so i'm the writer in the relationship so i prefer a very controlled environment where i can go away and think about exactly what words i'm going to use and uh we were months i'm being generous years late in the deadline for this book mm-hmm. and uh i was invited to do a TED talk. And it was a ridiculous thing to say yes to given the amount of work that was involved. And I decided to do it and to lean into my own discomfort with it. And the outcome of that, of the whole process in terms of community and uh, getting better at things and even improving the ideas. And I credit this credible curation team and our curator, Corey Hagem, for making it happen, um, really challenged my own relationship with discomfort. Mm. So I learned a tremendous amount about that. The The personal example uh, happened last week when my sister-in-law, Zoe, um, in, invited me to go to uh, Taylor Swift concert on the other side of the country. Nice. And it was a totally ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I've decided to go and I will report back on how it turns out. But I'm already excited to be participating in this phenomenon that really feels like an American revival in 2023. Uh, and, I know. I'm, I, that's what I've been told. Um, but I, I will report back uh, on it, but I'm I, I'm already um, feeling like this was the right call. I love it. I think first Taylor Swift, yes, and in the history of the podcast, which I'm very excited about because I'm a huge fan. Um, Francis, you've been on the podcast before, so for returning guests, we actually asked them to tell us a a thank you because story. And as listeners yeah. to the podcast know, of course, this is our research with Heather Caruso at the University of Chicago, now at Yale uh, or at UCLA, pardon me, um, around the idea of how do we continue to engage with people that we maybe don't agree with. So I'm curious if you have a thank you because story for us. But I'll just start with the hypothetical. If yeah. our sister-in-law Zoe asked me to go across the country, <laughs> I would have had a thank you because Thank you, because I can tell how much you love me. <laughs> but you will not be but going. there's no freaking way I'm coming with you. No. So, but Thank I'll, you. No, I don't know where this lands. No, in no, I think that's, that's fine because you, you appreciate the, the I appreciate it's a gift. It. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a gift. So, and the one that's happening more in my life. So I grew up in a, in a family of, um, that was filled with judgment of others. So a mm-hmm. connoisseur of judging. Um, and pessimistic judgment. And I much prefer optimistic curiosity. So when I'm with my family a lot, and that's been the case this summer, um, I, it, I, I started by being so frustrated by their pessimistic judgment and like trying and, and knowing it like, and owing it, like just trying to correct it and trying to correct it. Um, And then when uh, more recently, when I have converted, anytime I hear them telling me things that have pessimistic judgment, I convert it to I love you in my mind. Mm. And I just hear I love you. And it's thank you, your um, you know, for looking out for dangers for me. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for being concerned. And so I think my thank you because is just hearing I love you, even though the transcript might point it out as pessimistic judgment. That's a real powerful reframe. And, and 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 a gift to yourself. It, you know? it, it, I'm, I benefit tremendously, and it makes me more fun to be around. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, which is important. The yeah. book is called Move Fast and Fix Things, The Trusted Leader's Guide to Solving Hard Problems. Francis and Ann, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Oh, Kelly, loved it. We loved it. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Getting the Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive